Isaiah chapter 42, starting at verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faintly bring forth just, faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Our second reading is from Acts 17, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend the time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, 
that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and imaginations of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You find no man at all intellectual who is willing to leave London. No, sir, when a man is tired of London, he is tired of life. For there is in London all that life can afford. So famously said the 18th century writer Samuel Johnson. Now this week was a fairly standard one for me. I cycled around the place as I often do. Without planning to, I realised I pedalled past the British Museum, St Paul's Cathedral, Gray's Inn, the British Library, the Globe Theatre, the Royal Exchange, the Old Bailey, giant skyscrapers and plenty more. Or this week, it was usually raining, so I had little motivation to appreciate the architecture or the history or all that these institutions represent. But they are all right here. And even those places I've just mentioned barely scratch the surface of this great city of London. So much more, which is why so many come to visit. They want to come to live, to work, to study. There's so much, the old and the new. The art galleries, the palaces, world-leading universities, so much to admire. I've been in London 18 years. However long you've been here, there's always more to take in. So ponder for a moment if the Apostle Paul came to our city of London. What would he make of all this that he could see? How would he respond to it? Well, in today's instalment from Acts, I hope you've got the page open, Paul arrives in a city very much like London in many ways, first century Athens. Now, Athens in the first century is not quite what it once was, but it does still represent the height of learning and culture. There's the Acropolis with the Parthenon standing there. Visitors would arrive and simply stand in awe of what they saw but not the Apostle Paul. Of course, he can see what's impressive, just like anyone else. But he sees more than that. He sees what really matters about this city. That's in verse 16, where we're told, he was provoked within him as he saw that the city 
was full of idols. Maybe the Apostle Paul is like us. I'm sure he was in that he prayed the Lord's Prayer regularly. We did it today. We pray, hallowed be your name. And of course, Paul meant it as he prayed that. So then he looked around Athens and he is deeply grieved. No one has personally hurt him or attacked him or offended him. Paul's concern as he prayed is for the glory of God. Paul knew, he felt deeply that God is worthy to be honoured and served by all people. That is to be hallowed, hallowed. So as he comes into the midst of what he can see is idolatry, he is deeply provoked. And of course, this is also with a concern for people. Idolatry always dehumanizes and hurts and destroys. So look at this city of Athens. Its people desperately need the Lord, as do the people of London. Hallowed be your name. If we prayed that prayer and meant it, as we have this afternoon, then this week we go out into this great city. Surely we too will be disturbed by all that's around us. Yes, the false gods today don't have the same name or look the same as in Athens, but there are idols everywhere. Idolatry, education, status, achievement, so many more. And as we see it driving, consuming people's lives, we should be saddened and grieved and provoked. God is not being given the glory he deserves and people are being hurt all around us. So we see this. How then should we respond? Well, how did Paul respond? If he was provoked, does that mean he went on the rampage in Athens? Or did he simply despair as if there was nothing to be done? Well, neither. Verse 17 tells us, so he reasoned. That is, he had something to say. But what then would he say faced with all of this? Likewise for us here in London, what can we possibly say? How will we in our individual lives or maybe as a group in a workplace or a school or university or here as a church, how will we speak to those around us? Well, let's learn from what Paul does in Athens. First, we see Paul starts with the risen Jesus. He starts with the risen Jesus. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So Paul headed to the synagogue. That's his normal practice. But notice the message is not only for what we might call the churchy types. He's out there in the marketplace every day with whoever passes by. He gets himself into the public square where people are and starts talking. Now, we're joining Acts, obviously, chapter 17. We know from his pattern throughout this book what he would have started with, or rather who. He always led with Jesus, the Christ, his death, and resurrection. And so as he did that in this marketplace in Athens, all sorts would hear, including, particularly we're told, those who, well, should we say fancy themselves, those who consider themselves philosophers, like these Epicureans or Stoics, who are more than up for an intellectual debate. So we're told Paul reasoned with them, 
starting with Jesus. What's the response? Well, look how verse 18 goes on. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So no surprise, some immediately dismiss Paul as a babbler. By babbler, they're kind of giving the impression he's trying to impress us, but it's obvious he doesn't really know what he's talking about. But then there's others, they seem to have listened a little bit more, but their conclusion is he's talking about foreign gods and divinities. Why do they think that? Well, Luke tells us, because look what he says next, they hear him speaking about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, in first century Greek culture, gods often came in pairs. Aphrodite was married to Hephaestus. There's plenty more, but soon in Acts, we'll come across Artemis in Ephesus, who was the goddess daughter of Zeus and Leto. We're not used to that, but that's how they thought in those days. So, when Paul's hearers hear him talking about Jesus and the resurrection, it seems they think he's talking about a pair of gods, one called Jesus and the other called something like resurrection, who they maybe took to be the female consort of this male god, Jesus. Well, notice for a start what Paul's listeners have got right. Paul's focus is on Jesus and the resurrection. So Tuesday evening, you're getting out of work, bit of a rush. Someone asks why. Of course, you're going to a Bible study. But they say, why do you do that? Just say, because Jesus physically rose from the dead. Or then on Friday evening, you're in the coffee shop or the pub, maybe. The discussion turns to the harm religion does, whether overseas or maybe the harm it does in this country, holding back progress in our society. So you chip in. Well, I guess the issue is, did Jesus rise again from the dead or not? Well, like Paul back then in Athens, we're being shown here as we are surrounded by the idolatry of London. Make it clear what it's all about. You want to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. Yes, of course, if we're with someone from a different culture or background or education, there may well be misunderstanding, just like with Paul. But even by saying that, you're making it plain that what matters is Jesus. That's the issue we need to consider. So in Athens, it's obvious they are confused with their pair of gods, Jesus, and the resurrection. They haven't grasped what Paul means. So what next? It's obvious they are trying to fit what Paul has said into the way they are already thinking about the gods. But it just doesn't work. So what will Paul do? Likewise for us, we're met with confused looks. What next? Well, Paul started with the risen Jesus. Now he goes on to clarify with Bible truths. Well, these Athenians wanted to hear more from Paul. So, verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, this all looks very promising, doesn't it? But if you read on to verse 21, Luke kind of nudges us and tells us, actually, this is more a desire for novelty. You know, in the same way, people today always want to see the next video on their social media feed. They're not looking to take it seriously. It's just the next way of being entertained. Well, so it is here in Athens. But all the same, give Paul an opportunity. He's going to take it. Verse 22. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So this Areopagus, here we're talking about the civic governing body with responsibility for Athens. So it's an august gathering that Paul has been brought before. What will he say? Well, notice he begins by commenting that he can see that the people are very religious. Now, that sounds complimentary, but Luke, our author, wants us to uh, realize a little bit more. The word Paul uses for religious really means superstitious. So he's already beginning to challenge them. In Athens, all these religious practices, it all seems so highly intellectual. But is there actually a firm basis at all for them? And he develops this line now of argument, verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe these clever Athenians weren't so sure about God after all. So along these altars to a range of deities, they've covered their bases by having this one to an unknown God. Now, of course, Paul's ultimate aim is to completely overturn the way they are thinking about God and gods. But he's willing to start with what he finds here. He agrees, yes, there is a God who is unknown to them, but Paul can tell them all about him. So what does he go on to say? Well, two headlines to pick out. First, he tells them of God the creator who gives God the creator who gives, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So it's the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One God made it all, everything in it, which means straight away, here is one Lord of all which already, if a listener is paying attention, is provocative. Because if that is true, where does that leave all these other so-called gods in Athens? And Paul is quick to help his hearers see the implications, because he goes on there, this God does not live in temples made by man. Do you see what Paul is saying there as he looks around at these stunning buildings around them? He's saying, however architecturally grand and impressive they may be, there's nobody home. (laughs) They're empty. Well, on he goes, verse 25, nor is this God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. Again, Paul wants to turn their thinking on its head. Humanity comes up with this idea that if there is a God, then what is needed is for us to do things to keep this God happy, whatever that is. No, says Paul, because God really is the creator of everything. Whoever you are, God gave to you life and breath and everything else. So don't you get it? God is a giver, not a receiver. You are the receiver. So therefore, absolutely everything you have, you have already received from this creator. So of course, he's trying to change their thinking, but it also raises an obvious issue. How have you responded to the one true God who has given you everything you have? So Paul speaks of 
God the creator who gives. He goes on next. He goes on to explain all of humanity is created to seek after God. Verse 26. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. There we are. We are not in the dark about where humanity came from. Whatever those professors in Athens University might be saying. First came one man named Adam. We are all descended from him. And notice we were created for a reason, with a purpose, which is, verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Paul is telling those Athenians that they were not made for these idols that they worship. London, you were not made for money, for a career, for a merely human relationship. Because those idols, they can't deliver, not in this life, let alone, well, Paul's going to come to that, because we were made for more. We were made to know our creator. And before you dare to say it, Paul says, God is not hiding, trying to make this difficult. He is close to you. And in fact, this is affirming what Paul knew. Greek writers in their culture would say, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. So Paul wants to change how they and we think about God. So verse 29, being then God's offspring, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Well, here's humanity again, likes to think we can reason ourselves to God. We can come up with our earthly ideas. We can work it out for ourselves, make our own objects, as if that tells us what God is like. Paul says, do not do that. Instead, Pay attention to the true God. Well, how do we know that, we ask? Well, Paul wants to say it's not difficult. It's not, oh clever Athenians, rocket science or brain surgery or even complicated theology. It's not even Paul being the clever apostle. I don't know if you've noticed what he has done all through this address. He's simply been quoting the scriptures. He hasn't given the Bible references, but on the sheet, you'll see I've put them there check them later, what Paul is doing is setting out before them foundational Bible truths. None of these themes are hard to find. They are throughout the Bible. They can be known, so God has revealed what he is like. And notice Paul has made it clear this is not just for the religious types. Just look at this through the passage. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 25, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, all the face of the earth. End of verse 27, this God is not far from each one of us. All this is true for everyone. So it is, for a start, true for each of us. We had a great start, as we've heard, to our small group Bible studies here on Tuesday evening. 
I looked around and I think I counted over 25 nationalities represented. And God made each of us and he made us to know him. So what we are seeing in this passage is true for each of us, but it's also true for every person of whatever background we will meet here in London this week. Or if you're going overseas, wherever you go in the world, whatever the culture or mindset or prevailing philosophy, remember these truths. It is still true. One creator who gives, we are created to seek him. Paul's not quite finished. He now, if you like, wants to drive home the heart of his message. And now we see Paul focus on the risen Jesus. He focuses on the risen Jesus. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see the pattern of Paul's address? He started with Jesus. He then filled that out and spoke more generally about God and humanity. But now he's focusing in again on this one individual with whom he began. I sometimes go for a run in the morning in Victoria Park, and occasionally I see Ronnie O'Sullivan doing the same. Do you know Ronnie? Ronnie the Rocket O'Sullivan, he's a many times snooker world champion, one of the best snooker players ever. He's also a faster runner than me, that's obvious, although I know that's not hard. But I will point out he is younger than me. Well, just this past week, Ronnie won the Shanghai Masters, a great snooker title. He was interviewed immediately afterwards, and he said he was just going to give the trophy away. Why? The puzzled interviewer asked him. To which Johnny replied, Rodney replied, I always give them away. I'm preparing for death. There was quite a long pause. It's quite a statement to prepare for his death. Maybe as we hear that, maybe those watching that interview thought, but how do you prepare for death? Well, the atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell once declared, when I die, I shall rot. Now that is true, as far as it goes, but it's short-sighted. Because do you see what Paul is spelling out here to these Athenians and to us? A day is coming where every individual will be held to account for the way we have responded to this creator. Again, the Old Testament had spoken about this day, but now we are all the clearer on who it is we will be standing before on that day, the risen Lord Jesus. Which sharpens for us the required response which Paul sets out. We must repent just like those Athenians needed to do. That is to recognize this view we've come up with for ourselves about God or gods or no gods was wrong. But whatever else we were living for was, as well as being stupid, a rejection of the one true God. And so now we realize we are to repent, to turn back to our creator, who's now revealed himself all the more clearly in the Lord Jesus. Notice not an optional extra it's not if you feel like it, take it or leave it. 
Verse 20, it is a command to the Athenians, to London, to us. You must repent. Jesus is Lord. You will face him one day, so turn to him now. So uncompromising. And when Paul has spelled it out, now there is an immediate response. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Paul had stood before the Areopagus, he had respected them, and he'd gone to great effort to engage with them in an intelligent way. He'd quoted their writers, he'd made it all so clear. But all the same, we're back to where we started. Mention Jesus and his resurrection, mockery will follow. Maybe they realized what Paul, in fact, was saying to these leading intellectuals of the day. If you do not know this one true God revealed in Jesus Christ, then verse 30, look at the word that he uses. You are ignorant. I know that he'd say the same about London today. So you work for a think tank. You eat dinner at university high table. You're an analyst in high demand. Whatever, Paul might say. If you do not know the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ, you are ignorant of what you should know and what really matters. And if you continue to reject this message, this ignorance is deliberate. It's culpable. You do know, hence the command to repent. You might know this passage in Acts 17 about Athens is often used today as an example for us as Christians of cultural engagement And there is a right place, of course, for listening to those around us, making connections with their worldview, engaging with their thinking. But if we've presented the gospel and all our hearers comment on is how learned and erudite and sophisticated and culturally engaged we are, what do you think Paul would say to us? Did you actually give them Jesus? straight, that he's alive and Lord, and they must repent. Because if you do that, however well you have engaged in those other ways, you will be mocked. Because the issue at root is not intellectual understanding. It's that people do not want to repent. And to avoid that, they will sneer, and you will be mocked. But Mocking was not the only response in Athens. Look how verse 32 goes on. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Now, were these hearers interested really? Or were they still like those we heard back in verse 21, just like to be entertained by these new ideas? Well, I guess we can say time will tell. If someone is genuinely interested, I think they would have at least two urgent questions First of all, if Jesus from God did really rise from the dead, well, why did he have to die in the first place? And then second, if Jesus will judge the world in righteousness, how will I fare on that day? And then both of those questions can only be answered by the astonishingly good news of what Jesus achieved at the cross. Although for now, verse 33, we're not told. Paul doesn't linger he heads out. But, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, 
among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and the others with them. So notice in the midst of the mocking, there were some, a group, who believed, including, we are told, these two named individuals. They realized what Paul said made sense. Even, we're told, a high-ranking Areopagite. Now, that person is no more important than any of the others, but it does show that the straightforward message about Jesus and the resurrection from the Bible is able to persuade anyone to bring hearers to their senses, to cause them to repent. Well, the architect Norman Foster, he was responsible for the Gherkin just over there, for the Millennium Bridge, for the City Hall next to Tower Bridge, as well as many, many more. He once said, I travel continuously and see many cities, but there is nowhere like London. London is special, we might agree, and yet London and all its people are just like everyone in every place, which is what? Created by the one true God who gives to us life and breath and everything else. We were made to know this God who's revealed himself to all in Jesus Christ. This Jesus rose again. We will stand before him one day. And so we Londoners, like all people everywhere, must repent. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you that you, the creator of all, made us that we might know you. We thank you so much that even when we turned against you, you revealed yourself all the more clearly in the risen Christ who had died for us. Thank you that because of his death, we can look to that fixed future day when we and all humanity will stand before him in glory. And we know that we will be safe with you forever. Amen.